In July of 1999, Barry Sanders, one of the greatest running backs of all times, he retired from the NFL. He was a young guy at the age of 31. He was 1,400 yards shy of the all-time NFL record, and he walked away. Coaches and owners and fans of the NFL tried to lure and entice him back into the game. They were telling him, man, go for the record, go for the money. I mean, you're right there. You're living the American dream. You can do it. And he walked away. A few days later, he's from Oklahoma. He sent a fax to the local newspaper, and this is what he said. My desire to return to the NFL is less than my desire to leave. What Barry Sanders came to realize, what many of us have come to realize, is that chasing money, chasing fame, chasing popularity, chasing stardom, chasing anything outside of really chasing God is meaningless, it's empty, it's shallow, and it doesn't last. It doesn't last. Andrew Peterson is a Christian artist that I got turned on two years ago. And I love Andrew Peterson's kind of folk flair, if you will, of music. If you've never listened to Andrew Peterson, I would encourage you to write his name down. He's got a lot of just uh, cool songs and great sound. But one of his songs was called The Chasing Song. And in this song, he says, now and then these feet just take to wandering. Now and then I prop them up at home. Sometimes I think about the consequences and sometimes I don't. Well, I wish that I could say that at the close of every day that I was happy with the way that I'm behaving. And then he says this in the song, Job, he chased an answer. The wise men chased a child. Jacob chased for 14 years and he captured Rachel's smile. Moses chased the promised land. Joseph chased the dream. David chased God's own heart. And all I ever seem to chase is me. Anybody identify with that? I mean, what are you chasing after? I mean, oftentimes we become so uh, intoxicated with the pursuit of ourselves. We become so enamored with ourselves. And if we're not careful, we start elevating me only. And that's the pursuit. Leonard Wolf, Leonard Wolf was a, a political uh, theorist. He was an author, a publisher, and the husband of the late Virginia Woolf. Listen to what he said. He said, I see clearly that I have achieved nothing. The world today would be exactly the same if I had played ping pong instead of sitting on committees and writing my books. I therefore have to make a rather shameful confession that I end my long life of between 150,000 to 200,000 years I've accomplished nothing in these useless hours on the planet. Stop, stop, stop. What are you chasing? What are you pursuing? What grabs your affection, your attention, your time, your energy? Because I think as God rallies us together to ponder the biographical sketch of Solomon, the narrative of his life, there's so much that you and I will identify with, but there's so much that we can learn if we tap the brakes and say, what am I chasing? What am I pursuing? Am I really wasting my life? The dude said he wasted his life. So as you get into the book of Ecclesiastes, the premise thought in the book of Ecclesiastes is this. Everything in the world is meaningless 
when you exclude God. Eliminate God from the equation. Eliminate God from how you do your day-to-day life, your relationships, your finances, your work. Eliminate God. Exclude God. And he says, it's meaningless. And so when you start to look at this book, and today we're going to be at about 20,000 feet up kind of looking down, and then over the next weeks we'll go through chapter by chapter and look at this narrative. But when you get up here and start to look down, what you realize is Ecclesiastes exposes everything that dominates the modern culture in which we live. It's all about sex and work and education and fame and partying and drinking. Nobody partied harder than Solomon. Solomon had about 700 wives, had 300 concubines. You want to talk about women? I heard an old guy years ago say, why did he have so many wives and concubines? And the guy said, because he wanted to come home and find at least one in a good mood. But I, I, I don't think that. But when you study Ecclesiastes 2, and you start to look at how much he drank, how much he partied, the vineyards, when you look at his wealth, when you look at how other people labeled him a success, and Solomon, as he lays out his biographical sketch, it screams, I missed it, I missed it, I, I messed it up. He shares with us the portrait of a hedonist in this book. A, hed- uh, a hedonist and hedonism is all about the pursuit of pleasure for self-gratification. He lays out the workaholic. He even says, what good is it for a man to go out and work all of his life and die, and then his offspring come and get what he's got, and they waste it away in a few years. He lays out the portrait of a big shot, a guy that was at the top. He lays out the life of a fool. When you look at this book right here, it it is going to be so relevant to you and me. And and people sitting here week after week are going to say, that's me. And you're going to have friends and family members that you're going to say, this is very relevant and pertinent to where they're at. I, I, I want to speak to them from God's word. How to help them is they're searching for meaning. It's crazy. It screams, don't waste your life on secular humanism. Don't waste your life on the pursuits of the things of this world. When you get to chapter 12, he said, when all has been said and done, all that matters is remember God, fear God, keep his commands, man. You're not going to be here very long. Live life with purpose. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, he says this, I the teacher, and we'll get to him in a bit, I was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by all wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden. This phrase is going to appear repeatedly, all that is done under heaven, or he uses the phrase, all that is done under the sun. And what it means is all that is done under the sun or under heaven means living life excluding God, not including God, living life in the pursuit of what you think is going to satisfy. He uses a word here where he says, I uh, studied and explored wisdom. The word wisdom he uses there is not God-style thinking. It's not theological understanding. It's all the natural-style reasoning that man gets involved in. And we live in this postmodern culture of secular humanistic-style reasoning in our culture today. And people are pursuing what the world says is truth. And what he's saying is, I pursued that. 
And he uses the word right here, uh, I studied it, which means I investigated the deepest roots of human logic and wisdom. He says, I explored it. I, I, I chased that trail until the trail ended. I've looked at everything that man has pursued to try to make him happy, to fill the hole in his soul, to try to take away the pain and suffering inside of his soul. I've looked at every fix and vice that a man could use. And he eventually gets to saying, it's empty, it's meaningless, it's vain. So if you had to title the book of Ecclesiastes, write this down. I would title it, The Thrill of the Chase. The Thrill of the Chase. Because repeatedly after he uh, gets what he thinks is going to make him happy, repeatedly after he gets what he thinks is going to satisfy him, repeatedly he goes, it's empty. It's vain. So again, don't miss it, don't miss it, don't miss it. Exclude God. Life is meaningless. Include God at the center and allow God to call the shots. Life has meaning. So Solomon shows us throughout this, and he, he gets to the end and he says, there's perspective. There, there's hope. So you walk in here today, and many of you, you've been living in the ruins of your own self-destruction. And, and you're walking in here today, and repeatedly, week after week, people come in here, and they're starving for hope, and they're starving for direction, and they're wanting to believe that life really can count. I've got good news for you. It can. You don't have to waste away again. You don't have to wallow in self-pity and misery any longer. So write it down, write it down, don't miss this. I've broken it down really like the first four chapters— First four chapters, chapters one through four, Solomon lays out his search. Chapters five through ten, he, he gives us all these sayings. Solomon wrote the majority of the book of Proverbs. And so when you study Proverbs and read through Proverbs, it was so much Solomon-style wisdom that he was getting from God. The problem with Solomon is not what he wrote, it was what he did. Solomon knew what was right, he just didn't do it. And the problem with most of us is not knowing what's right. It's actually implementing and executing what is right. That's the narrative. He writes out all these sayings that work. And then the last two chapters, 11 and 12, he gives the solution for where life's meaning and purpose and value is found. Man, this is a phenomenal read. The bio biographical sketch of the wisest man that ever lived apart from Christ. And we can glean so much insight from him. Chapter 1, verse 1, Ecclesiastes, listen to what he says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. This is the words of the preacher. The word preacher there in the Hebrew is the word koaleth, and the Greek is the word uh, ekklesia. It, it means to gather and collect. He's not calling himself a pastor of a local church. He's king. He's what he's saying. I'm in a position where I gather and collect and assimilate people. That's who I am. The word Ecclesiastes comes from that. This is a dude that could collect people, collect stuff, collect wisdom. He was a great collector. What do we know about Solomon? How did he get here? Well, what we know about Solomon is he was the son of David. And we also know that his mom was Bathsheba. So David hooked up with Bathsheba when 
Bathsheba's husband was out fighting for Israel. And David saw her, took her, lay with her. She became pregnant. He ends up killing Bathsheba's husband, basically. And he takes this Bathsheba to be his wife. Well, David and Bathsheba, that son they had died. It didn't make it. David begins to weep, but he still keeps Bathsheba as his wife. David had multiple wives. So, so David keeps Bathsheba, and Bathsheba becomes pregnant again and gives birth to Solomon. So Solomon grew up in a place of royalty, if you will. He, he grew up with stuff. He, he grew up having a lot of stuff around him. And not only did he have material wealth, he also had servants and others. I start doing a biographical sketch on Solomon, and I'm like, what do we realize about his life? Don't miss this. Solomon didn't know how to say no. He didn't know how to say no. He allowed a lot of different things to enter into his life because he didn't have guardrails and he didn't tap the brakes and say no. But the reason he couldn't say no is because it took him years to learn how to say yes to God only. Listen, listen. When you learn to say yes to God only as God calling the shots and being your ultimate authority, only then do you have the power and the resources inside of you to say no to the inferior things around you. A lot of people are trying to say no to their habits and addictions and bondage and all this stuff, but you can't say no repeatedly until you say yes daily, hourly, every minute. That's what we take away from Solomon. You know, Ricky, as you take guys through 12-step Christ-centered style teaching and all this stuff, brother, guys can't say no to addictions until they learn to say yes daily and every hour and every minute to the king. And you guys know that to be true. Don't miss it. Everything is meaningless under the sun. All pursuit of human wisdom and knowledge and information and all this wealth and Notoriety and fame, it's meaningless when you exclude God. You can have all this and enjoy this if you've said yes to God and yes to God daily. And that's where God is wooing us. Eliminate God and watch all hell break loose around you daily. Watch your life unravel. Watch things collapse. Come on. Are y'all jogging with me? Just say, yeah. Okay. So, the central fault is we kind of jog through this biographical sketch is fear God. Get to know God. Enjoy God. You're living in a fallen world. There's all this frustration around you. You don't have to live in misery. You don't have to live in stable misery. You can be in the world and not be of the world. Let me give you some key themes. And I want you to study this. I would highly encourage you, over the nine weeks that we're in this, Read the book of Ecclesiastes for the next two months. Read it daily. Ponder it daily. Get you a journal. Write down what God is saying to you. What does that verse say? What does that verse mean? What does it mean to me? Those three things. What does that say? What does it mean? What does it mean to me? What does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean to me? 
Write it down over the next two months. I promise you, God can rock your world if you will ponder and meditate and allow the Holy Spirit to capture the truth of who God is in your life. Here's the major themes. I'll jog through them. We're going to dive deeper over the next weeks. But one of the major themes in Ecclesiastes is man is sinful. Man is sinful. Chapter 7, verse 29, he said, I discovered that God created people to be upright, but they have turned to follow their own downward path. God created, created us to know him, enjoy him, worship him. That's the purpose we're on the planet. But I've noticed that men have turned from God to follow their own downward path, spiraling to destruction. He goes, I've noticed that. He knew he knew it from his own life, but he started noticing it from other people's lives. I can tell you in the 54 years I've been on this planet, I know that to be true based on my own personal experience, but I've noticed that to be true as I've dealt with other people. Man, we're sinful. Ecclesiastes, even Romans 8.20 says this, for the creation was subjected to futility. The word futility that Paul uses in Romans 8 is the same style word that Solomon uses repeatedly in Ecclesiastes when he talks about vanity. Vanity. So, so man is sinful. We're all born into the world sinners. Not righteous, not holy, not pure. We came into the world corrupt. I've had five of them, and I watch them as they're born, as they start to do life, and as they grab a hole, mine! Oh, you precious little saint. No, you foolish little sinner. That's how I came into the world, guys. My offspring is corrupt and jacked up. They need Jesus just like I do. Here's the second key theme. Life is empty when you live for self. Life is empty when you live for self. He begins the book with vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He closes in Ecclesiastes 12 by saying, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The word vanity means your life is a vapor. Vanity, your life is a vapor. One of the better translations for us would be, your life's like a soap bubble. You're just a bubble. You just, you just kind of appear quickly and disappear. Next time you see bubbles being blown around, just stop and go, yeah. Vanity of vanities. James even says life is a vapor. You appear for a short period of time, you vanish. Bubbles. What's up, bubbles? What's up? And, and, and your bubble doesn't last long. But your bubble matters. You see, we've all got this dash. And if you walk through a cemetery, you'll see it. You, you'll see a, a headstone or a tombstone, 1902-1981. Listen, 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 listen. That was a bubble. That dash is a vapor. That right there probably indicates 79 years, give or take. That's all you're going to get is a dash. 79, 70, 80 years. Even David said, that's about all you're going to get. What are you going to do with your dash? What are you going to pursue with your dash? And as you study through Ecclesiastes, what you find Solomon saying is, life is empty when you live for yourself. But life is purposeful and meaningful and abundant and can be enjoyable when you seek God. 
when you fear God, when you enjoy God. Vanity, vanity, vanity. The book is not about life being meaningless. It's about it being meaningless when you exclude God. It's about only God can give you perspective day in and day out. Here's a third theme. No one is immune from sin and death. Sorry. We live in a fallen world. Sin's all around us. Temptation comes our way. We're going to be tempted. It doesn't matter who you are, where you live, you're going to be tempted. And you're going to die. We just finished talking about death a few weeks ago. It's appointed a man to die. One out of one dies. You're going to die. Don't think about it. What's going to happen? It's like walking outside and seeing it rain. It's going to rain longer than just five minutes. I don't want it to rain. Well, wear it. It's going to rain. It's raining. You're going to die. It's going to happen. Listen to what he says. Chapter 7, verse 20. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on the earth who continually does good. Romans 3 would say, none are righteous. There's none righteous. He's like, I'm looking around. The world is flooded with sinners. Paul called himself the chief of sinners. I'm like, yes, I was the chief of sinners. Everybody. And then he says about death. None of us can hold back, chapter 8, verse 8. None of us can hold back our spirit from departing. None of us has the power to prevent the day of our death. There is no escaping that obligation, that dark battle. And in the face of death, wickedness will certainly not rescue those who practice it. You're going to die. But if you live in wickedness and if you live in rebellion to God, wickedness can't rescue you. There's only one that can rescue you. Make God the center. Make God the center of all that you do. And what he lays out in the book of Ecclesiastes is humans forfeited the righteousness that God had for them. They rebelled. They turned to less wild lovers. They turned to other stuff. They told God they didn't think he could satisfy them. They needed him plus. He's going, stop it. It's wickedness. It's not going to last. Here's a fourth fourth theme. Throughout it, he says, learn to enjoy God's good gifts. God's got a lot of good gifts. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. God's put a lot of good gifts out here. Uh, Enjoy relationships. Enjoy food. Enjoy drink. Enjoy working. Enjoy. And he says it repeatedly. God's put so much around you to enjoy. Just don't go to those less wild lovers to try to find enjoyment. They're not going to work. Raising kids is a joy. Painful. Costly. But it's a joy getting to do life in marriage with my wife, with God's design, is a joy getting to do life with so many of you, Spencer. It's a joy. I mean, yeah, you can have peaks and valleys and twists and turns, Tom, but it's a joy. And he goes, enjoy a good meal, but don't be a gluttoner. I mean, come on, stay away from the buffet. I mean, tap the brakes. I mean, watch what you're putting in. Enjoy exercise. Enjoy. And I think one of the, the things that we can learn as we dive into this is, man, there's so much things, so many things to enjoy in life, but don't exclude God. Just don't try to find your enjoyment under the sun apart from God. Here's another thing. Fear God and honor God. Fear God. Honor God. Chapter 3, verse 14, I know that everything God does will remain forever. 
Everything God does. There is nothing to add to it, nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. The word fear means to give proper, proper reverence and respect to. God goes, I want you to fear me. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear God. Honor God. Seek God. Enjoy God. Know God. If you know God and love God, you'll obey God. When you know him and you start to really love him and respond to his love of you, and you start to obey God, then you're starting to fear God and seek God, and God becomes everything for you. Because that dash is going to end. And if I get 79 here, I can't define infinite eternity with him. Hey, I put you here to reflect me, to enjoy me, to show others how good I am, Cash. It's not about the pursuit of your own pleasure. I put a lot of things for you to enjoy. Enjoy that. But I've told you to stay away from certain things. And Solomon goes, I tried those things that God say, said stay away from, and let me tell you, it jacked up my life. But I pursued those things that God said pursue, and I realized that it was abundant. It wasn't boring. Ain't that the lie that God told many of you sitting here? That following Christ and enjoying Christ and really worshiping Christ? That's boring. Didn't he lie to you and tell you that sex, alcohol, and drugs would make you happy? Didn't he tell you that? And that when you pursued it, you realized it was paralyzing everything inside of you, spirit, soul, and body. Didn't you learn that? I did. And God goes, now fear me. Know me. Enjoy me. I, I've got a friend named Crawford Loritz who mentored me. Crawford is one of my favorite people on the planet. And Crawford was doing a study through the book of Ecclesiastes. And he shared with me five observations on what we learn from the enormous success and the tragic failure of the life of Solomon. Now, this would be worth paying attention to. Uh, his enormous success, his tragic failure. I was telling a friend yesterday that I got a call about five years ago from a guy by the name of Dan Good. Dan Good is an editor with ABC News. He was writing a book on a friend of mine named Ken Caminetti. Ken Caminetti and I played together 85, 86, 87 with the Astros, and Ken died of a cocoa overdose. He died about 12 years ago. And so this guy was writing a book on the life of Ken Caminetti, and we talked for an hour. We talked for an hour, and he's Q&A, Q&A. And then he finishes up his time by saying, Tim, if we learn anything from the life of Ken Caminetti, what do you think we learn? This is a guy that's dead. He's been gone for a while. He was a former National League MVP. He was a stud baseball player. If we learn anything from his life, what do you think we learn? And I said, I think we learned this. I think we learned that as a culture, we continue to applaud the wrong things. We applaud athleticism more than character. We applaud giftedness more than integrity. We applaud the external while never investigating the soul. 
We learned that when your giftedness takes you further than your character can sustain you, shipwrecks are bound to happen. We, we learned that when your gifts and abilities takes you further than your character can sustain you, shipwrecks are bound to happen. So, so the question he really asked was, from his enormous success and tragic failure, what do we learn? When you look at the life of Ken Caminetti, you've got, to, you've got to ask the same question. Solomon, Ken, you had success, you had tragic failures. What do we learn from you? Other people that we've interacted with, what do we learn from that life? And we better be learning. And, and, and I believe the reason God has allowed this book to be canonized and placed in our 66 books that we call the Holy Bible is because we've learned so much from him. Here are the five things, I'll jog through them, that Crawford said. He said, we learned that human wisdom is empty. Again, we've talked that. Human wisdom can't answer the moral questions of humanity. Human wisdom can't change the heart. It can only inform the head. We learned that. When, when everything about you is head reasoning, intellectual, academic, and just the pursuit of human knowledge, I'm not saying we should be ignorant. We've got to live in the world. But what he's saying is, it's empty. Second thing is this, we must all face the laws that govern human life. There's laws that govern human life. And Solomon came to that realization. The scripture says that it's going to rain on the just and the unjust. It's going to rain and storms are coming to the rich and the poor. It's going to come on the young and the old. So when you start to back off and start to look going, what do we learn? We learn that pain, tragedy, and chaos is a part of life for all humanity. Doesn't matter how much earthly success, fame, money, or lack of it you have, it's going to come your way. Chaos is coming our way. Tragedy, pain is coming our way. One of the things I believe Solomon lays out here is we must learn to refuse to eliminate the consequences that others need to face. We live in a society that wants to bail people out, get them off the hook, minimize their junk. And I think when you study through Ecclesiastes, he's like, refuse to eliminate their struggle. Let them face the music. That's where part of growth happens. Don't bell them out. You can't choose your suffering and adversity, but you can choose where you turn when you're going through your suffering and adversity. What are you looking to? What are you turning to? And he's all about saying, keep God the center, keep God the center. Let him live his life out through you. Here's a third thing Crawford said. There is no lasting happiness in earthly treasure or earthly pleasure. It's not going to last forever. You're going back to the worm buffet. You're going back to dust. Dust, you came in and dust, you're leaving. You, 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 you can't find lasting happiness in earthly treasure and earthly pleasure. You can find temporary kind of fun and satisfaction, but it don't last forever. It doesn't last. Your identity is not determined by what you do. Your activity does not define your identity. Your cars, your houses, the restaurants you eat at where you can vacation, 
the jewelry, it doesn't define you and it doesn't last. Your dash, your bubbles, my bubbles, don't last. Look in the mirror tomorrow when you wake up and go, bubbles. <laughs> it don't last. The only thing that lasts is fearing God, keeping God center. If we learn anything from Solomon's life, from his enormous success and tragic failure, it's be humble and grateful for your life. Life is a gift when God made you in his image. Breathe the breath of life inside your nostrils. Be humble. No matter what you've done, where you've been, be humble. No matter what others say about you, good or bad, be humble. Learn to appreciate it. When you see entitlement and arrogance, crush it like a roach. Crush it in your life. Crush it in your kid's life. They're starting to live with entitlement. They're starting to live with arrogance. Listen, dude. That is a contradiction to where real life is experienced. You're arrogant. You're cocky. You're not that good. We learn that. And then here's what we learn. Don't miss it. Live with eternity as the backdrop. Every decision you make in life should be lived with, I'm living with eternity as my backdrop. My citizenship is not here. All this gold and wealth and women and wine and song. I mean, Solomon, he brought singers, the best singers of his day. They sang for him. They entertained him. He didn't go to concerts. The concert came to him. Who do you want to listen to tonight? I bring Al Dean in. I right, sit him down, dude. He's here. Who do you want to listen to? I want to listen to Buffett. He's here. He, he didn't know how to say no. He wasn't at times living with eternity as the backdrop. Who we belong to and where we're going should determine every move we make every day. What do we learn? 20,000 feet up, just, just flying over the book of Ecclesiastes. What do we learn? And where we end up landing is eliminate God, exclude God. Watch all hell break loose. But where we really land is include God at the center of everything you do and find how meaningful life can be.